Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number seven, Leviticus chapter four continued. We left off studying Leviticus chapter four. And in chapter four, we get this new kind, a new type of sacrificial offering called the Hatat. And the, uh, we are going to be calling this the purification offering. Some translators, matter of fact, most of them, tend to title this the sin offering. However, I think this translated name misses the point. As this offering is not so much about payment for the sinful act or the sinful behavior, it's about the person who sins having his purity restored. It's about a remedy to the state of defilement that a person finds himself in when he sins. It's about the restoration of the sinner. It's about reconciliation with God. It's not about payment for sin. Now, I used the analogy last week of a person being poisoned and the hatat being the antidote to that poison which has so infected that person. How the poisoning occurred, the precise nature of the poison is relatively unimportant. Only the condition of the person who's been poisoned is an issue. Now, I know that sometimes it's difficult for our minds to see the difference between the person who commits the sin and the sin itself, or even how that sin actually changes the condition of the sinner. So let me attempt another illustration of the purpose of the purification offering. See if I can get a better idea of it. A man staggers into an emergency room at a hospital with a gunshot wound in his chest. He collapses. He's unable to provide the doctors and the nurses with any information. So the hospital staff immediately springs into action and they set about to determine the extent of this injury, how to treat it for the best interests of the patient. Their sole intent at that time, all of their effort, is focused on saving that person's life. How the gunshot wound happened, where it happened, who pulled the trigger, was it attempted suicide, was it an accident, was it done in self-defense, was that person actually the aggressor? None of this matters at the moment. The behavior that led to this life-threatening condition is secondary, even though it was that behavior that led to this man's precarious condition. Only the condition of that patient with the gunshot wound matters. The medical staff isn't treating the behavior. They're treating the person. Even if this man was a criminal, Shot by the police while committing a crime, it doesn't matter. The doctor's purpose is to save the person's life, not to alter his behavior or to administer justice. Okay. The hot is like that. 
God is concerned about the person making sure that the effects of the sinful behavior on that person get counteracted. And the effects of sin are always the same. Peace with God is endangered. Yet there's a caveat. The Hata'at only concerns matters when the sinful behavior which has rendered this person unclean were unintentional. And even more specifically, inadvertent. It was a mistake. It was an error. He didn't mean to. Now, in our last lesson, we saw that unlike the first three sacrificial offerings, which were the Olah, the Mecha, and the Seva, the Hatat purification offering classifies people. And it also assigns certain specific animal sacrifices to each class of person. And the classes are, in descending order of importance, the high priest, the whole congregation, the tribal leaders, common individuals. Because the high priest is the mediator between God and the people of Israel, the high priest can do the most damage the relationship between God and the Hebrew people. When the high priest sins, it has the effect of both polluting him and the entire nation. So, the sacrificial offering must be the greatest. And that sacrifice is a mature bull of at least three years of age to reflect that. Now, we also saw that in this ritual of the Hatat as it concerns the sins of a high priest, that only certain fats from the bull are burned up on the brazen altar and that no part of that bull can be used by either the priests or the people. Instead, it has to be removed entirely from the encampment of Israel, taken outside the camp, right, and burned up on a common wood fire there. Okay. The idea is to dispose of it, right? to get rid of it, as the bull is the substitute for the sin of the high priest. Now, while I'm not going to go into it deeper just yet, let me remind you that the sacrifice of the red heifer is also done in a similar manner as the hata'at for the high priest. Okay, And the, the Hebrews... The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Christ was killed outside the camp. Okay, You can refer to last week's lesson for more details on that. Anyway, let's now look at the next highest class of people and the ritual called for in the Hata'at offering for the whole congregation. After the high priest, the sin of the whole congregation or rather, in this case, the nation of Israel as a whole, is viewed as the most serious. Now, just to be clear, it's not that every last Israelite individual sinned the same sin at the same time. Okay, rather, it's that the behavior, judgment, and decisions of the most of the group becomes representative of the whole group. Okay? It is rather ironic 
I think. That in modern Western Christianity, we tend to view sin as a purely personal and individual matter. That is, that the only sin that has some negative effect, effect on you is the sin that you commit. Okay, that is, in a group, maybe your exception to the, the exception to the rule, that somehow you're going to escape the consequences of the behavior of others in that group. Okay, well, Hebrews have always had a concept of both corporate, that is group, responsibility and individual responsibility. And they get it from the scriptures. Okay, in the Bible, we find Israel being removed from the land, exiled and dispersed. Because as a group, they brought God's wrath upon themselves. The innocent and the guilty both suffered, so to speak. Okay, now we find all throughout the Bible that nations, communities, even families will suffer dire consequences due to the sins of some members of their group, but not necessarily all members of that group. Okay. In the end times, we're told that entire nations are going to be judged based on their treatment of Israel. Okay. Yet I can assure you that every nation on earth at that time will have many believers among them that love and bless Israel. But nevertheless, as a whole, these nations will be judged on their national policy and collective action. God will hold us all responsible as a group for the actions of our nation. Now those believers, even though they may love Israel, who are living among those nations who go against Israel will be affected according to God's judgment upon the whole group to which they belong. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here. Personal salvation is a matter between one individual and the Lord. Your entire family or nation can be unbelievers, but if you accept Christ, you're singled out and saved from eternal separation from God. Let's remember, though, that personal salvation is very narrow in its scope. Sadly, because of our Western culture that's become so individualistic and has abandoned extended families in favor of what we call nuclear family, parents and their children and nobody else, we've tended to extend this concept of individualism too far. Right, and we distance ourselves from the group or the community from which we're a part. We think we can kind of huddle in our home and shut out the world and escape all the injustices and rejection of our Lord that is displayed on a corporate level right, by our government. Well, guess what? That's not how Jehovah sees us. He sees us as individuals in light of salvation, but as part of a group when it comes to the overall behavior of that group and the divine wrath that that group might be subjected to. Now, we see the order of importance 
between a group and an individual here in Leviticus chapter 4. Because after the high priest, God places more importance and responsibility on the group as a whole than even the leaders of that group. And then finally the individual acting alone. So in verse 13, we're we're going to be told that if the whole assembly, the nation of Israel as a whole, commits some kind of sin in the form of an error, an act that is against God's laws and commands, and they suddenly become aware of that, they're to seek atonement via the Hatat. Let's reread part Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13 to the end. If the entire community of Israel inadvertently makes a mistake with the assembly being unaware of the matter, and they do something against any of the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, they are guilty. When the sin they have committed becomes known, then the assembly is to offer a young bull as a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. The leaders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head and slaughter the bull in the presence of Adonai. The anointed priest is to bring some of the bull's blood to the tent of meeting. The Kohen priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times in the presence of Adonai in front of the curtain. He is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar before Adonai there in the tent of meeting. All the remaining blood he is to pour out at the base of the altar for burnt offerings, which is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to remove all of its fat, make it go up and smoke on the altar. This is what he's to do with the bull. He must do the same with this bull as he does with the one for the sin offering. Thus the priest will make atonement for them. And they will be forgiven. He is to bring the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins and inadvertently does something against any of the commands of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, he is guilty. If the sin which he committed becomes known to him, he is to bring as his offering a male goat without defect. Lay his hand on the goat's head and slaughter it in the place where they slaughter the burnt offering in the presence of Adonai. It is a sin offering. The priest takes some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it onto the horns of the altar for burnt offerings, its remaining blood is to pour out at the base of the altar for burnt offerings, and all its fat he is to make up and go, uh, make go up and smoke on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice for peace offerings. Thus the priest will make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. If an individual among the people commits a sin inadvertently, doing something against any of the commands of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, he is guilty. If the sin he committed becomes known to him, he's to bring as his offering a female goat without defect for the sin he's committed. Lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, slaughter the sin offering in the place of burnt offerings, and the priest is to take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. All is 
uh, its remaining blood he's to pour out at the base of the altar. All its fat he is to remove as the fat is removed from the sacrifice for peace offerings. And the priest is to make it go up in smoke on the altar as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Then the priest will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he is to bring a female without defect, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it as a sin offering in the place where they slaughter bird offerings. And the Kohen is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it onto the horns of the altar for burnt offering, and all of its remaining blood is to pour out at the base of the altar, and all its fat he is to remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice for peace offerings. And the colon is to make it go up in smoke on the altar, on top of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. Thus, the priest will make atonement for him in regard to the sin he committed, and he will be forgiven. Now, the sense of this is not that the community of Israel at large knew they were trespassing against Jehovah and sort of hid it or refused to acknowledge it. Rather, they were simply unaware of what they had done. But then something caused them to be aware. And even so, even if they had no intention of doing anything wrong, God pronounces them as living in a state of guilt. Now, you and I may look at that and say, man, that is pretty harsh. That doesn't seem fair. It's kind of like driving in a 55 mile an hour zone and then encountering a 35 mile per hour speed zone with the signs behind a bush that grew up and covered it and a cop with a radar gun nabs you, tickets you, you explain it and says, it doesn't matter. The law is the law. Okay? That just seems unfair to us. Okay? But as we get to the end of verse 20, we're going to see that by following God's prescribed procedure of atonement, the group will be forgiven and restored to fellowship with the Lord. And really, that isn't fair either. Because the price to restore the group to a pure condition isn't paid for by the group. It's paid for by an innocent animal. Not those who are responsible. God's justice system, thank God, is not man's justice system. God declares guilt and forgiveness according to his standards. We're declared guilty according to God's rules, not ours. And we're declared forgiven according to God's rules, not ours. And that principle is the biggest stumbling block for most people when it comes to accepting Yeshua as Savior. We prefer to judge for ourselves what's right and wrong and even more what the price ought to be to set things right. When the whole congregation sins, we're told here in Leviticus 4 that the required animal sacrifice is a young bull. For the high priest, is a mature bull. For the whole congregation is a yearling. A mature bull is generally considered three years old. 
So the same type of animal is used for both when the high priest sins and when the whole congregation sins. The only difference is the age of the bull. Okay? But that the age difference is what creates the value. Okay? Now this also indicates just how similar in seriousness and responsibility are the sins of the high priest as compared to the sins of the whole congregation. Okay? And we see that the ritual is that the young bull is brought to the tabernacle and the elders of the community lay their hands on the animal. And in Hebrew, this act of laying on hands is called semecha. Okay, The elders in Hebrew, uh, zekanim, okay, were the people's representatives. How they're chosen is not entirely certain, but the key is to understand that these elders were not tribal leaders who inherited authority. Okay. Rather, they were common folk who had in some way set themselves apart as, oh, perhaps having great wisdom or great judgment, leadership skills and a heart for the people, something like that. There would have been hundreds, if not more, of these elders to serve these three million Israelites. The elders even had a hierarchy among themselves so that it would have been the chief elders who were called forward to lay their hands on this bull. And again, the concept of laying on hands is to symbolize the transference of the guilt from the people onto that animal who would then lose its life as a ransom to remove the guilt of the people and restore them to God. Well, at the end of verse 15... We get a little phrase that you'd do very well to put into your memory banks. And it occurs where it says, And the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. The phrase before the Lord is significant because it tells us where the associated action occurred. During the days of the wilderness tabernacle, later on in the first temple era and even later yet in the second temple era of the New Testament when the phrase before the Lord is phrase before the Lord is used it indicates that whatever action is taking place it's happening to the east of the sanctuary door in front of the door into the holy place and the idea is Excuse me. If one were standing at the door to the sanctuary, he should be able to see the ritual action occurring. I demonstrated this to you in the offering of the red heifer. It had to be an offering before the Lord, yet we find out that it also occurred around 3,000 feet away from the door to the sanctuary because it was required that that sacrifice happen outside the camp. So in order for both of those conditions to be met, that ritual had to occur at a spot high enough with enough elevation for the officiating priest to be able to see the door that goes into the sanctuary. So the spot selected for that Mifkad altar 
All right, the place where the red heifer was burned up in Jerusalem was near the summit of the Mount of Olives, which was beyond the 3,000 foot boundary of the camp and also high enough that he could see the door into the sanctuary. Now, the idea behind all this is that in the minds of the biblical Hebrews, Jehovah inhabited the Holy of Holies inside the sanctuary. And the sanctuary faced directly east. So, with the Lord sitting atop his mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, he would be facing this direction. His view was towards the east. Right? If any ritual was to be before the Lord, it had to be performed from the east, facing west, in order to view the door of the sanctuary. Now, we can scoff at all this a little bit, but that's not the point. The point is that when in the scriptures we get the phrase before the Lord, it means it was done facing into the door of the sanctuary. So the elders of the people lay their hands on the bull. It slaughtered the blood's caught in the container, and then the high priest sprinkled some of that blood on the parochet. Right? That's the inner veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies that's behind it. Right? <clears throat> um, then he also dabs some uh, blood on the horns of the incense altar that sits right in front of the parochet. Right. And then the remainder is poured out at the base of the brazen altar, that big altar where all the burnt sacrifices happen. Now, except for the age of the bull, the ritual for the hatat for the high priest and for the whole congregation are identical, which demonstrates the near equality of the extreme seriousness and responsibility of their sins. Now, notice what it says at the end of verse 20. Very key. It says, Thus the priest will make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Now we've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again. We'll even talk about it tomorrow. Because sadly, the church is nearly unanimous in its misunderstanding of this principle. The Hebrew word used in this sentence to express the translation make atonement or expiate, this depends on what your Bible version says, is kippur. The Hebrew has always been very clear on the meaning of this word. It means to wipe something clean, to cleanse it. It means even to disinfect it. We've also discussed that Hebrew is a cognate language (coughs) of Akkadian. And in Akkadian, we find the cognate word kupuru, which also means to wipe clean or make clean. However, it is an axiom within Western Christianity since the time of Constantine that sins in the Old Testament were really atoned for, they were just covered by the blood of the animal sacrifice. And it's even customary in Hebrew-English dictionaries that have been edited by Gentiles to define the word kipper as covered over. Now, how often have you heard 
that the difference between what the animal sacrifices of the priest did and what Christ did is that in the Old Testament, a man's sins could only be covered, but they weren't really forgiven. They weren't really wiped clean. Okay? Or that his sins were just treated with some kind of inferior kind of forgiveness in the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay? Over and over again we see in the Torah that if a priest will make Kippur atonement, for the worshiper, his sins will be salach, S-A-L-A-C-H, forgiven, which also means pardoned, right, as an act of grace by Yehovah. Okay. Let me say it again so there can be no doubt. The sins of an Israelite who made the proper sacrifice and did so with a contrite and sincere heart, major ingredient, okay, had that sin forgiven by the Father. He was relieved of his guilt. He didn't have to face it again. So do not be thinking that these animal sacrifices were somehow ineffective. They were completely effective for what they were created to do. However, the thing they could not do was make atonement and thereby gain forgiveness for all sins. Some sins... Those generally classified as intentional, another name for them, high-handed, could not be forgiven. There was no sacrifice designed to atone for those sins. And that person died in his sin and was therefore permanently separated from God. Also, with every new act of sinful behavior, another animal sacrifice was needed. Even more, even though the Israelite was forgiven of his sins, his nature was still such that he couldn't stand before the Father in heaven. Okay? Christ remedied each of these terms and conditions of the sacrificial system. Okay? As one who trusts in Yeshua, even high-handed sins can be atoned for. His sacrifice was once and for all, so another one isn't needed. In fact, Paul reminds us, there's not even another one available. Okay? And by means of his death, for a, for, for a preparation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our natures are made clean. So that we can stand in the presence of the Father in heaven. That's what separates the difference between what the sacrificial system could do and what Christ can do. Now, I've been asked this question so many times. So what happened to the Old Testament Hebrews who kept Torah and died in good stead with the Lord before Christ came? What happened to them? Or as the New Testament sometimes refers to them, the saints of old, very loving phrase we'll find several times in the New Testament. The saints of old. Well, according to Luke 16, the righteous went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Right? Whereas those who did not keep Torah went to a different place. One typically translated because it's a Greek translation as Hades. 
Okay? Now, while I'm in no way dogmatic about this, all right, because there is just too little information to be absolutely certain, it appears that there was a temporary place where those who had been obedient, those who followed the sacrificial system and depended on that and they lived righteous lives before God, that's where they went after their death. And they were held captive there, we're told, safe and sound, until Christ announced the good news that they were now free to go to heaven. Notice that it was after his crucifixion, but before his ascension that we're told, in Luke 16, that he went down into the earth to confront both the dead in sin and the dead in Torah, the saints of old. Okay, A gap is even spoken of. A separation between these two chambers and those in the place of darkness and torment just simply awaiting their final destruction could view those had joined Abraham in a chamber of joy and light and shalom. That chamber of Abraham's bosom is, guess what? Empty. It's completely empty now. It has no further use. Those who were in it were freed by Yeshua's sacrifice. Those who have trusted in Christ go directly to the presence of the Father. Absent in the body, present with the Lord. Why was there a temporary place? Abraham's bosom, why was that even needed? Once again, it was because even though sins could absolutely be forgiven by means of animal sacrifices coupled with repentance, man had to have a nature exchange in order to be pure enough to be admitted to God's heaven. That nature exchange happened on Shavuot, Pentecost, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. Let's move on. Okay, next in the hierarchy of Israeli societal importance and therefore responsibility before God, in his eyes, are the tribal leaders. Okay? High priest, the whole congregation, now we're down to the tribal leaders. Pretty important guys. And here we see a definite shift because the sacrificial animal isn't even a bull anymore. It's a male goat. The male goat is quite a step down in value from a bull. The same basic steps of the ritual are taken. The goat's brought to the temple. The guilty tribal leader lays his hands on the goat so that his guilt is transferred to that chosen goat. The goat slaughtered. Some of its fats burned on the brazen altar. Next, additional differences between the Hata'at ritual for the tribal leader as compared to the ones we just read about, about the high priest and the whole congregation arise. Certain portions of the goat are actually given to the priests as food. This is known because in verse 26 it's explained that the goat carcass is to be used as in the Zevah Shlamim offering. Of course, you won't see that in your Bibles because they don't leave that Hebrew in there. 
Okay? Rather than the remainder of the goat being destroyed outside the camp, as is done with bulls. Further, the blood ritual, that is the sprinkling of the goat blood, takes place on the outside of the sanctuary. It's performed by a common priest, not the high priest. Blood is also dabbed not on the incense altar horns, but on the brazen altar horns, which is outside the sanctuary. So, with the atonement ritual for the tribal leader, we see this significant step down in the importance of both the sacrificial animal and the one who must officiate over the sacrifices compared to the if the high priest sins or the whole congregation sins. From a bull, we step down to a male goat. From the entire animal being destroyed, now parts of the goat can be used for food. From the high priest having to perform the ritual, a common priest can now officiate. Everything we'll find in Leviticus, frankly, completely blows apart the standard Western Christian concept that a sin is a sin is a sin before the Lord. It just blows apart that the God that God doesn't classify our great sins. That pilfering a candy bar makes you just as guilty as committing premeditated murder. That whether as the president of the U.S. or as a pastor of a congregation or as a member of a church, he holds us all equally responsible. As for salvation, that's absolutely correct. As for responsibility in our earthly duties and the seriousness of those occasions that we sin, that's totally wrong both the nature of that sinful behavior and the position you hold in society matters. Okay. And finally, verse 27 deals with individuals. The lowest class of Hata'at. Now let me state that when I refer to class, it's not about the worth of an individual, say, versus a high priest. Or that a person's individual value to God versus the value of a group is less or more. It's about the reality that the high priest sins are far more dangerous to Israel's peaceful relationship with God than the whole, than when the whole congregation sins. The whole congregation united in sin is more dangerous than when a tribal leader sins. And a tribal leader sins are more dangerous because he can influence those under his authority than when one lone individual sins. This is an important truth that we have to wake up and acknowledge. In today's terms, for example, the sins of a general congregation of believers, whether it's Torah class, a Baptist church assembly, a Lutheran congregation, or a Messianic synagogue carries with it a higher consequence and more importance than even the leader of that group bears. And the sins of the leader of that group carry with it greater importance and danger than the sins of an individual member of that group. And by the way, notice I just skipped over the high priest, and begin with the whole congregation of my comparisons, do not equate a teacher, a pastor, a bishop, or whatever with the high priest. 
if the high priest position is permanently taken, and there's only one of them, all right, and his name is Yeshua. Okay. Now let me say again, the congregation as a whole is more accountable and it creates more danger when it comes to sinning before God than even the congregational leader. We tend to want to see it the other way around. So, when you join a group, particularly a group of professed believers, it's no small decision. If that group operates outside of Holy Spirit guidance and you belong to it, you can't both renounce it and stay in union with it at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You can't determine for yourself that you're above it all. So says the Lord, right here in Leviticus. Okay, don't get me wrong. The idea that every individual will agree wholeheartedly with every other individual in a group isn't the issue. Okay? Nor is such a thing very likely, even under the best of circumstances, is it? Okay, so the individual, we're told is to bring as his hatat offering a female goat, or as it shows us in verse 32, optionally a female sheep that can be offered. And a female animal in the Bible is generally considered of lesser value than a male animal of the same kind. So we see yet another step downward in the price of the ransom for an individual making hatat than for the classes above it. The ritual is now familiar to us. The female goat or sheep is brought to the tabernacle where the individual lays his hands onto the animal to transfer his guilt. Next, the animal slaughtered a common priest this time, smears its blood on the horns of the brazen altar, and the organ fats removed burned up on the brazen altar. We're reminded again for the purpose of the burning up of the animal parts in verse 31. It's to create smoke, which contains a pleasing odor to God. And verse 35 reinforces the practice whereby the priests can keep certain parts of the sheep or goat for their personal food. As God says, this aspect of the ritual is to take the form of the Zevah Shlamim, or the peace offering. Now notice once again, and I'm going to point this out often as we work our way through Leviticus that the scripture states these are the final words look at your Bibles the final words of Leviticus chapter 4 that the priest shall make kipper and the sin shall be forgiven the ritual sacrifice wipes clean the defilement of the one who sinned and thus the sinner's condition has restored the full relationship with the Father. Next week we'll get into chapter 5.